Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp. Witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. It's me and I'm flying solo again. Don't ask me why, it is what the way it is. I've got a really interesting guest with me today. I'm really excited. We're hitting 20th century history because obviously best time period of all. I've got Philip Auger with me, who's a historian and journalist who's written several books, including The Bank That Lived a Little, The Death of Gentlemanly Capitalism and The Greed Merchants. And he's here today to talk about his newest book, which was written with writer and documentary maker Keely Winston, Agent Twister, John Stonehouse and The Scandal That Gripped a Nation. Welcome, Philip. Hi, Alina. Thank you very much for having me on board. Really excited because, first of all, we all love a bit of a scandal as we always do, and an agent, which makes it even more scandalous. So I'm quite excited to get get into this, really. He's certainly a scandalous agent, I can tell you that. Where should we start? Well, let's start with his background. I mean, who was, because we're going to be talking about Joan, John Stonehouse. I mean, what was his background all about? So we're in, let's go, we're back into the 20th century, as you you say, Alina. And uh, we're really in the, the key decade is the 1960s, and John Stonehouse was a Labour MP at the time. Uh, Harold Wilson was Prime Minister. Stonehouse was a rising star in the Wilson government. Some people thought that he was a future Prime Minister. He was um, a senior minister, Minister of State for Aviation, Technology. He was Britain's last Postmaster General. And he's a very interesting character. He was devastatingly good-looking. Women fell at his feet, um, which, frankly, is something that he rather welcomed, as we'll hear a bit later on. That's a good thing. You know, we do like a dashingly handsome man occasionally. Yeah, you like a good swoon. I know that. (laughs) So he's he's got the gift of the gab as well. He's a very powerful orator, orator. He can charm the birds off the trees. At the same time, he's got quite a sort of, he's got quite a hard streak. And if he wants to put you down, he can put you down with a a very deft choice of words. So charming, persuasive, a hint of steel, a rising star in the Labour government of the 1960s. Um, Not quite a cabinet, not quite on the cabinet, but just the rank below that, really a, a very big, public figure and and much loved by by the tabloids and the serious papers he's often on tv a lot 
on the radio. He's a he's a, a, a big, big star in the 60s. The problem for him was, though, that uh, in 1970, Labour lost power. Wilson lost a general election to the Tories, Edward Heath, and Stonehouse becomes uh, no longer a Minister of State, but simply an ordinary backbencher. So that's that takes us through to the 60s up to 1970. What happens then? He's a backbencher. This doesn't really, uh, this doesn't really suit him very much. He's got a, a taste for high living. He likes uh, the Hold on, don't life. we all have a taste for high living? We do, but there's <laughs> ways to get it and there's ways not to, aren't there? <laughs> so, uh, so he's... He's an he's an MP. He's on a backbencher's salary. He no longer has um, he no longer has a minister's pay and perks, uh, but he wants to continue to fund um, a, a kind of quite a lavish lifestyle. So what he does he he goes into business. He starts up a business uh, as as an export consultant. He develops a wine business, and he even starts a bank. But as we'll perhaps hear a bit later on, it doesn't entirely go according to plan. Who starts a bank? Well, <laughs> a, who, someone who sees an opportunity, really. Um, an idea was brought to him by a couple of outside investors. Uh, he, he, you know, he was a kind of guy who, who believed that everything he touched would, would turn to gold. And he went for it. It started to go wrong in in sort of the early in the early seventies, and rather sort of face up to it, rather admit that this bank had failed. Together with um, some of his colleagues, he he tried to fool the auditors, and by about nineteen seventy four, um, it was really likely that this business was going to go belly up, and so Stonehouse decided to do something about it. Okay, so going back a little bit into uh 1971 november he mm. he just he just disappears doesn't he and well people presume he's dead someone disappears tell us about his disappearance and the immediate fallout okay so this was it wasn't actually 1971 it was 1974 and by this time um the bank was really going wrong and he's going to his auditors are on to the way that uh, the, the books have been manipulated and there's going to be he's pretty sure um, a public disgrace. So things aren't going well there. Things aren't going um, particularly well either in in his marriage. He's always had a taste for um, for let, let's just say an adventurous lifestyle. His rather saintly wife Barbara uh, has put, has put up with this, but by this time, by seventy four, he's really desperately in love with someone else, and there is something else that he wants to escape from. There are rumours circulating around that although he was uh, a government minister and a a committed member of the Labour Party, throughout this time, he had been spying on behalf of the Czechs. The Czechs were um, part of the Eastern Bloc. They were Russia's kind of easy way in to the West. So things are beginning to build up for him. And so what happens in November 1974 is that he simply disappears and indeed is presumed dead. So what no, I was going like to jump in t- there. No, I was just going to jump in there and say, I can see why he's disappeared off the face of the earth, first of all. I mean, shit is about to hit the fan. 
And I'm assuming he's disappeared to kind of cover his ass, cover his tracks at this point. That's the way that's the way it turned out. What he did, actually, throughout 1974, he began to create a, a parallel identity. So he knows he knows how the system works really well. And he's an he's an MP. He can get in. He can get into all sorts of places. So he rings his local hospital and he asks uh, medical records for the names of men about his own age who have died recently. And he concocts a story that he wants to help their widows. So he gets the names of five guys about his own age who have died recently. He then visits some of the widows to find out if these guys had had ever been abroad. Again, he's using an excuse to, 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 to help them. He discovers the identity of one person who's about his own age, who's died recently, who's never been abroad, which means that he can apply for a passport in his name. So he carefully gets the birth certificate, applies for a passport, gets the photo taken, forges the signature on the back, does all the thing, but suddenly by by the summer of 1974, he's got got an alias, he's got a passport in someone else's name. At the same time, he starts to open bank accounts in this individual's name and begins to create a parallel identity. So what happens in November 74 when he disappears He takes a flight to Miami. He has a colleague along with him, a colleague who knows nothing about all this to act as witness. And he goes swimming off the coast of Miami, leaves uh, a pile of his clothes at at the beach beach club and never comes back. And the colleague reports him as missing, presumed dead. What Stonehouse actually does, though, he doesn't go swimming at all. He tiptoes along the beach to to a neighbouring hotel where he's left a spare set of clothes, a suitcase, passport, and credit cards in a false name. And then he simply zips across the world to Melbourne, Australia, to start a new life. Wow. Um, I don't know where to go with this. This is uh, turning into a proper little spy story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll come on on to the spying in a minute. I mean, let's just kind of finish the story. So... Stonehouse is there. He's 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 settled us down in Melbourne. He's a very very cool guy. He's a very cool customer indeed. He begins to integrate into local society. He joins a jazz club. He goes to barbecues in the apartments where he where 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 he's staying. He gets business cards printed in his new name as an export consultant, and he's beginning to settle in quite nicely. I should say that by this time, um, the woman that he's fallen in love with, um, it it was his former secretary, Sheila Buckley. She wasn't in on the act to begin with, but by this time he has contacted her and and said, look, I'm I'm not drowned, I'm I'm, I'm in Australia. And she starts to write to him. And he goes to, to, uh, just goes out of town from Melbourne to a place called St Kilda picks up his mail, no doubt hoping to find a letter from Sheila, picks it up, goes to the station to get back on the train to go back in, into Melbourne, and suddenly someone taps him on the shoulder, and it's Melbourne police who've discovered his true identity, and he's under arrest. And um, from, then on, from then on, the whole story unravels. Stonehouse is eventually extradited back to England, in in the, the middle of 75 
goes on trial. It's a long trial. It's a, a kind of it's a blazing hot summer that year. The, the pavements are sweltering. Stonehouse is on trial in the Old Bailey, where the atmosphere also gets pretty hot because he tries to defend himself and annoys the judge. He's charged with credit card credit card theft and deception, and he eventually gets um, a seven-year jail term. His his uh, his girlfriend Sheila Buckley is also charged. She gets two years, uh, but it's a, it's suspended because the judge feels sorry for her. And that, you know, if you like, is that's the story of the escape and the story of the capture. It's a guy who has who has faked his own death to escape looming bankruptcy. Um, I guess to, he hopes to, in the end, um, escape with his girlfriend. Although whether she, I doubt whether she'd ever agreed to that. Um, and that, you know, that could you could just say, well, what an interesting story. It's a bit like the canoe man, this 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 guy in 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 Britain a few years ago who faked his own death in order to claim off the insurance. But actually, the twist in this one, Alina, is that there is this really intriguing Czech spy scandal. And for you as a contemporary historian, I guess that's what will interest you most. It will. It will. I mean. <sighs> I don't know where to go with this. There's so many different directions we can take this podcast in because Chris has given me a load of questions and I kind of want to throw these questions out the window because I've got other things that are brewing in my mind. Um, We'll come to the spy thing in a moment. I want to stick to this whole idea of him escaping still uh, and being in Australia. I mean, talk to us what what happened when he actually went back to the UK and uh, he had to basically face Parliament. He had to face all of these people. He's basically deceived. He's lied to. What is happening there? Literally, what are they, how are these people feeling? What what is the reaction of the of the British? So there's a million and one questions going out of my mouth at the moment. <laughs> and I'm just like, tell me all of this. I need to know it now. Okay, well let's 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 try and take let's try and take the million million questions kind of a, a bit more slowly. So first of all, when he disappears, um, there's a lot of public interest in it because, as we were talking about at the beginning, he's a, a kind of charismatic guy, um, well known well known in the media, and there's a lot of interest in the disappearance of such a, a major public figure. The one person who wasn't taken in by this was his boss, Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, a very canny Yorkshireman. And Wilson is in his study at number 10 Downing Street when a, a diplomat comes in and says that um, the member for um, Walsall North, John Stonehouse, uh, has disappeared off the coast of Miami, um, missing, presumed, drowned. Wilson sucks on his pipe and his first question is, hmm, I wonder what his majority was. Uh, the diplomat tells oh. him and uh, and ushers out of slips out of the room, and Wilson turns to his uh, head of policy and says, um, "I don't believe John Stonehouse has disappeared. I never did trust him." Smart man. So, smart man Wilson. So Wilson kind of straight away sees through it, but Stonehouse's wife um, Barbara, who is a who's a a really amazing woman and and comes through as a, a really strong character in our book. She, his children, his business partners, many of his parliamentary colleagues are absolutely distraught at, 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 at this shocking news. Uh, and they are, they are grieving. Um, 
they initially they they think that he you know they hope that he's missing at sea. Gradually they come to terms with the the fact that as they believe it that he's drowned, and then suddenly you know there are calls start coming in. It's on it's Christmas Eve, nineteen seventy four. The family are kind of getting ready for their first Christmas without without. Um, without John Stonehouse, and the news comes through that he's been found in Australia. Um, the shock gives way, the grief gives way to joy, and then eventually the joy gives way to different sorts of feelings, the feeling that he must have had some sort of breakdown for this to happen. And over the next few months, the the opening months of 1975, the family members go out to Australia they spend time with him. They believe that he had suffered a, a really bad, a really bad mental breakdown. And at one level, there's an there's an element of forgiveness. And certainly, his wife Barbara um, all the time portrays herself as the loyal wife. But actually, privately, she's decided that this is just simply a step too far. The the serial adultery that's been going on for years. Uh, this is the the very close relationship he continues to have with Sheila Buckley. He, she, she goes out to Australia as well, and Stonehouse tries to divide his time between his wife who's out there supporting him and his girlfriend. It kind of blows up, and Barbara Stonehouse, um, we later learn, decides at some point during this time that once the trial is over, she will, she will divorce him. She's there with him, you know, publicly throughout the trial, but as soon as he's convicted, uh, pretty soon after, uh, a, a divorce is announced. Talking about his mistress, just, I'm, I'm, we're going jumping back and forth from the story, and I'm really sorry to everybody who's listening for this, but my curiosity is, once he gets a divorce, does he end up marrying Sheila? He does indeed. Um, it, I mean, you know, it looks to it looks to Keely and I as though, you know, these two were really star-crossed lovers. They were, they were, they were really deeply in love, and it's and they actually seem to have. Uh, once Stonehouse was sentenced uh, seven years, he serves about half the time. He's out um, in about nineteen seventy eight, and actually they have um, a happy and it would seem successful decade together. He tries to make a living by writing four novels, um, one on one, one of which was under a pseudonym. He does. He's. On the chat show circuit, he's he's got some public speaking events, and um, it looks like they have a you know they have a happy ten years together, uh, and uh, then it's in fact in 1988 on one of the chat shows um, that um, Stonehouse uh, dies. It's a, a typically dramatic ending. He's he's on the chat show on live TV answering a question. He then you know looks ill and kind of part stumbles of the lights go out um the program ends uh, and uh, stonehouse is, is taken to hospital and unfortunately dies died soon afterwards wow that's a bit of a dramatic ending i mean for a dramatic Every- man <laughs> absolutely everything everything about this this chap's life is is written in in big bold capital letters and if whenever there's a dramatic t- twist it, it it always occurs I'm assuming uh, I'll be sitting on the edge of my seat while reading through his life story and being a proper tape, a page turner, page turner. 
Well, we tried. We've tried to write it um, as though as though it, it is actually um, a kind of espionage novel. And one one of the amazing things about this, like like you, Alina, I'm I'm a historian. I've never known. I've never had such rich source material. My co-writer Keeley has been working on the Stone House um, case for a number of years in connection with a, a documentary that she, that she made. The documentary came out last year on um, on Channel Four, and um, you know this, the, the thing is, everyone sold their story. Um, Barbara Stonehouse sold her story. Sheila Buckley sold her story. Often, both of these often often multiple times. The court cases um, are all documented, so there are loads and loads of witness statements. Um, there is there was detailed press coverage at the time. There's a wonderful report into the banking fraud written by the Department of Trade, and it's possible from these sources to sort of re- really recreate every single step of the way. And Keeley's really good at, at finding out the the kind of the mood of the times, how people dressed, what the rooms looked like. You know, there are there are sort of amazing things that that emerge. You know. At, about life in Britain in the in in the sort of late fifties, early sixties, even things like the arrival of pizza, the first night that the general election was covered on TV. There's all sorts of sort of little contemporary details that we put into the book that that try that try and kind of create that contemporary feel and kind of take you back into that age. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. So basically, you've written the book properly with proper details, unlike certain things that you come across and you're like, well, that's not possible. And that's not possible. And uh, my point is here is that the amount of times that people say things happened and they actually didn't. And uh, it's it's nice to be able to hear that it's it's a well-researched book. Well, I mean, we like to think we like to think so. Um... The, the sort of base document we had has had over three thousand references in it, which you can't. I mean, that's that's ten a page. You can't kind of you can't bury the reader in that. So we've we've kind of summarized summarized it and put just tended to put the references at the end of each block of text, so you don't that you you don't get in the way of them. But you know, I I mean, Keeley is meticulous. I'm a professionally trained historian. Um, 
and for both of us, it was important that this that this book is accurate. The other thing, um, the the other kind of amazing source is that, and we've mentioned the the check spying thing a couple of times, Alina. Yeah, I, 500... that was that's going to be my next question. Actually, is I was going to direct us towards the check. Sorry, I did interrupt you. That's 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 great because no, not not a problem at all. But the, the because while we're on sources of the five hundred page check uh, file in the Czech National Archives on John Stonehouse or Agent Twister as he was called, and that's the name of our book. Jesus, that's inc- I've got to say I'm happy to be a twentieth century historian compared to someone who does ancient history because the the later it is the bigger larger wealth of sources that we have available are much easier to work with anyway enough talking about sources let's talk about his links to Czechoslovakia because you were in the National Archives you've got what was that 500 page um, dossier document my god that's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, information and a wealth of information where does where does all of this come into and what and why Czechoslovakia well, it's um, why Czechoslovakia is probably the place to start, I would say. Um, and we need to say 1950s, 1960s. We're really in the depth of the first Cold War. Communist Russia is really hardening. It's got, uh, it's got imperial ambitions. It's, um, it's in, effect at war, in effect at Cold War with the West. And there are around Russia, there are a number of satellite states of which Ch- Czechoslovakia is one. And Czechoslovakia is kind of, um, it's sort of midway between the hard line east and the more liberal west. It's, it's under Russia, it's under Russian control, but it has still good links with the west. And Russia uses Czechoslovakia as a, a way into, as a way into the west. The Czech embassy in London um, has, is actually, uh, it operates as a legitimate embassy, but it is also a haven for secret agents. In the, in the, in the embassy, what appears to be a great big stationary cupboard, actually, if you open the door of the stationary cupboard and you went in, you would find yourself in the offices of the Czech Secret Service. So it was, Czechoslovakia was very active in trying to get intelligence which would then be passed back to to russia and the way they did it i mean it's uh, you know i'm not an espionage um, expert but the way it's done is it's like building a jigsaw puzzle you get little pieces of information you put you put them all together and in the end you hope you've got the whole picture and the kind of person that they targeted would be clearly people of influence or if possible people who they thought were actually on the way up people who would become important figures in public life. And during the 1950s, um, John Stonehouse was, uh, before he became an MP, was an, he wanted to, he was an aspiring MP. He was, uh, he was uh, uh, involved with the cooperative organisation. And they basically kind of reeled him in. They, they, they gave him presents. They initially, not just, just out of so-called friendship, uh, gradually, as the sums increased, they pressed for more and more information. And as then he becomes elected to Parliament, he, he he's of much more interest to them now. And clearly, once he gets, once he becomes a minister, he is quite a high value target. 
that John Stonehouse um, was no fool. And he realized that the further he got up the political tree, the more risky this thing was for him. I mean, once you take money from an enemy power, and money was given by, I mean, the, the favorite way to do it was he was told to park his car in a certain place, and they would simply leave leave money un, under the car or or, or under, the, under the driver's seat or something. But he was quite careful not to get compromised. He was quite careful not to give too much away. He never gave anything away that you could sort of regard as a sort of hardcore military secret. They were perpetually dissatisfied with the information that he gave them. There were useful things he gave, you know, about uh, about uh, world events, but he was he was he was pretty careful. Unfortunately for him, um, they photographed him with his handler. They tried to make sound recordings, although the audio isn't particularly good. And he was he generally preferred to give verbal reports rather than written reports. There's the odd, there's the odd written thing. So it was very much um, a game of cat of cat and mouse. Uh, they tried to compromise him in very in various ways, but uh, it's this constant kind of battle. You know, is he? We, we're getting very close to him. He's on the point of giving us a big secret. Then he ste- then he then he steps back. Uh, it's a it's a really interesting kind of insight into the way that um, intelligence and counterintelligence works. I'm assuming he was even smarter to the point that he wouldn't allow them any information that could trace back to him. That w- that was his hope. Although um, Keely and I are pretty confident that, um, that 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 the files do enable you to do that. His big fear was that um, there would be that one of the Czech agents that he was briefing would defect. And actually, I want to take you back now, if I can, to the year 1969. Of course. And this is the um, this is the penultimate year of um, Harold Wilson's big, big government. Wilson was PM from 60, 1964 to 1970. And Stonehouse has been... A, you know, it's been getting ministerial offices throughout the period. By this time, he is he's he's got a position called postmaster general, and in 1969, he's asked to go to Number Ten Downing Street. Ever the optimist, he thinks that this is going to be his big promotion. He thinks the only way you could get called to Number Ten to see the prime minister, um, what you know, apparently one on one would be that there'll be a big promotion in the offing. So he goes to number 10, knocks on the big black door, makes his way to the cabinet room where he would expect to see uh, Wilson. And he's redirected upstairs, not to the cabinet room, but to one of the number 10 drawing rooms. So he sort of bounces along the corridor, knocks on the door, goes in, and Wilson is there with two people. Wilson says, good afternoon, John. You know Michael, I think. And introduces Michael Halls, his his private secretary. And Stonehouse nodded, nods, but looks over at the other man. And the other man in the room, Wilson says, is Charles Elwell from Counterintelligence. And he says, John, there's a rumor there are rumors around, and uh, a Czech defector has defected to Washington and has named you as a secret agent. 
you'll need to talk to Mr. Elwell about this. So Stonehouse's heart must have spunk at that point. This was the very thing that he feared. But he's a very cool customer. Wilson calls the meeting to an end. And then Stonehouse and Stonehouse and, and Elwell have several meetings together. It's all very gentlemanly still. It's 1969. The meetings tend to take place in one of the gentlemen's clubs on Pall Mall. And Elwell can't break Stonehouse down. Stonehouse is a consummate liar. He has an answer for everything. And towards the end of 1969, Wilson gives instructions that MI5 are not to pursue this any anymore, that, that Stonehouse has effectively got off the hook. And Why? to be honest, Wilson... Well, Wilson must have been quite relieved by this because there were always stories that Wilson was a secret Russian sympathizer. I don't believe it for a moment, incidentally. But that was the, you know, those stories were always sort of swirling around Wilson's, you know, Wilson's a secret agent. He was, he was, his administration was in trouble by that time. The economy was out of, was out, was out of control. Um, he wasn't, he wasn't, the last thing he needed was evidence that one of his closest ministers, was uh, working working for the Eastern Bloc. So he would have been quite relieved. It was pretty convenient for Wilson to look the other way. And that, incidentally, Prime Minister's looking the other way, is a pattern that continually repeats itself throughout the next 20 years. Question. When he faces trial at the Old Bailey, is any of this brought up against him during the trial? It's not. The reason... Um, so he, Old Bailey is nineteen is nineteen seventy five. Uh, that's six years since the since the meeting with with Wilson and Elwell. Rumours continue to circulate. I mean, after after he disappears and and when he's suddenly rediscovered, there are there are stories in the press about about the about the the, the, the defector from 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 the late sixties. But it doesn't really go anywhere, and it's it's at his trial. Stonehouse, who conducts his own defence at the trial, and he's he's really very bad at it. He annoys the judge hugely, um, and probably doesn't impress the jury either because he goes on and on and on, and they want to get out of to get this case over. But um, he actually he Stonehouse's line of defence is that this is all this this case is all cooked up by. By the press and the media, they even introduce, they even print stories that I was a Czech spy. He says, "How ridiculous!" So it doesn't come up at the trial, but it comes up pretty soon after the trial in 1978. Now, by this, so by this time, Stonehouse is serving the last, the last days of his sentence. He remember he only serves three and a half years, and Wilson has retired. And he's replaced as prime minister by a man called James Callahan. James Callahan is a, is in a precarious position. He's running, in effect, a minority government with need, needing help from the from the liberals. And Callahan also receives intelligence. Now there's there's not just one defector. There's another defector as well. These stories are still here. It looks pretty much as though um, as though. Stonehouse really was a Czech agent. That's that's the, the tittle-tattle that is going round. And the Conservative backbenchers, who are now looking for any means they can to tilt Callaghan out of office, they pick up on this. 
they send they send someone over to the US. They interview the the defector. They tape record the interview with the defector. They bring it back to the UK. They deliver it to Callahan, and Callahan sees a transcript of it. So Callahan now thinks, look, it's seventy eight. This is a bit of a nuisance. I don't really want this to happen at all. My government's in trouble. I've got a wafer thin majority. The last thing I need is another scandal. But I can't ignore this. Jim Callahan was a, a former Home Secretary, a, a naval man, and he took intelligence matters very seriously. So what does he do? Well, I think he decides that he'll have Harold Wilson in, who by now has been retired for three years, and he'll ask Harold Wilson what he remembers about it. And uh, Wilson had, uh, Wilson admits that, uh, or agrees that he, he had heard the Stonehouse stories. He'd made a statement in the House that there was nothing in them. He says, amazingly, that he can't ever re remember meeting Stonehouse to discuss the episode. Quite extraordinary, given the this this very dramatic meeting with Elwell. But that's that's his story, and he's he's not really able, he's not really able to help. But now Wilson gets sorry. Now Callahan gets really really clever. He's got. The Conservative bank backbenchers braying for an inquiry. He's very vulnerable himself. He must he must somehow kind of take this out of the public domain. So what he decides to do is to brief the leader of the opposition on what are called privy council terms. You'll know Alina as a historian that privy council terms means that this this is a conversation that is taking place just between the two of us off the record. Now, the leader of the opposition at that time has, is still not very well established. It's one Margaret Thatcher. So Hold on, hold on. Margaret Thatcher yeah. gets involved in all of this. She does. She is the third prime minister. We've had Wilson, Callaghan, and now Thatcher. Oh, dear. Okay. So, he, so Callaghan is a really, really, really uh, a wily old bird. He brings Thatcher in and says, you know, you understand this is on confidential terms. Your backbenchers are demanding an inquiry into the Stonehouse affair. He tells her, I've looked into it. Um, there, is, there is evidence against Stonehouse, but not enough to stand up. And then Thatcher finish, finishes the sentence for him in a court of law. Galhan says that's right. And Thatcher agrees that under the circumstances, she will call off her backbenchers. And she tells you know she tells them that she's that she's discussed it, or to, to the effect that she's discussed it with the prime minister, and there's not enough evidence to to charge Stonehouse. Reluctantly, the backbenchers agree. So now we've got the three prime ministers who are all in it together. The next year, um, Callaghan loses the general election. Thatcher becomes prime minister, and quite soon. After she becomes prime minister, there is another spy scandal. This time it is a man called Anthony Blunt, who's a figure right at the heart of the establishment. He's the keeper of the Queen's pictures. He's a big, big establishment figure. And it turns out that he has also been, uh, that he has been, he has been uh, effectively spying for the Eastern Bloc. Thatcher is absolutely outraged about this. She makes a statement in Parliament describing such activities as dangerous, treacherous and contemptible. 
and she'll have no sort of truck with this kind of thing. We know, don't we, because of the meeting with Callaghan, that that's a bit ironic, but, you know, that's that's what politicians do. So we've give you the timeline again. 1978, we've had the meeting with Callaghan. 1979, Blunt is outed and Thatcher denounces treachery in the House of Commons. But then 1980, the very next year, more evidence emerges of Stonehouse's activities. And Thatcher is briefed by her attorney general that there really might be something into this. We might have to, we might have to have another look at it. There is more, in, more, more inquiries are made and she decides to have a meeting with her attorney general, who's a guy called Havers, and a senior conservative politician, the Home Secretary, William Whitelaw. They sit round and they all discuss it. And the briefing from the attorney general is that although there is more reason now to be suspicious of Stonehouse, he can't be confident that there would be a successful prosecution, that the evidence wouldn't necessarily hold up in a court of law. And yet again, they agree not to they agree not to prosecute. So we've now got three separate occasions in this, in the case of in, in the space of two years when the Stonehouse affair has popped up again and and been dampened down by authorities, quite honestly, who are just, it seems to me, only all too keen to look the other way. I was going to ask, why is this scandal not as well known as some of the others? So I think, um, I mean, I, that's, that's, that, that, that's a, a good question. Um, and, and it's hard to answer definitively. I suppose um, there are a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the intelligence Stonehouse gave away was was not of the same grade as the intelligence given away by spies like Burgess, Blake, Philby, McLean. As as we discussed earlier, he was he was very careful in in the material he gave away, and it's fair to say that uh, the Stonehouse family are adamant. That uh, that Stonehouse was not a Czech agent, and so there is there, there there is that there is that issue. But I think mainly it is that um, this all came out. This all came out really so long so long after the event. You know, I mean the iron the irony you mentioned. You know, the irony about all this is that um, John Profumo was um, UK Minister of War in the early sixties. Very, very important role at the time. He became embroiled in a, in a group uh, of of um, kind of slightly loose London figures, um, uh, including uh, you know in, including paid escorts uh, and also including Russian intelligence officers. And as a result of this liaison, he was required to stand down because of a security risk. He's forced to stand down because of fears of a security risk. Stonehouse actually was a security risk, and he kind of gets away with it. It's one of those quirks of history, really, that we have to uh, understand, live with, and, and try to explain. Philip, this has been really great. You know, we get a bit of a scandal. We have a bit of a spy uh, ring going on. There's lots of stuff happening. Can you just um, remind our listeners the name of your book? I'd be delighted to do that. The book is called Agent Twister, 
and it's called the and it's the, the it's John Stonehouse the scandal behind the true story behind the scandal that gripped the nation. My name is Philip Auger, A U G A R. My co-writer is Keely Winstone, W I N S T O N E. The book is out came out in paperback just a few days ago. If you're if you're able to buy it, we really really hope that you enjoy reading it. It's one of the most. I mean, I've been right. I've been writing about history for forty, fifty years. It's one of the most interesting stories um, I've ever come across, and one I really enjoyed writing. As I've enjoyed talking to you just now, Alina. Thank you very much. Fabulous. We will get that into our bookshop, and um, please get it from us because then Philip gets a nice big chunk of the slice. We get a chunk of the slice, and that company that's named after the uh, river in South America will not get a big slice as they're apparently building some sort of rocket. Chris always does a better ending to this than I do, so uh, I apologize, everyone, for my my rambling. But Philip, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely excellent. Real, real pleasure. Loved it. Thanks. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book.